Health and safety is something that every organisation must grapple with. But when you consider the many types of situations that workers might find themselves in, organisations must have a comprehensive health and safety solution. Today, we'll examine vehicle-based safety and loan worker safety, two areas that are vitally important but might not necessarily be on an organisation's radar. You're listening to Smartrack Conversations. My name is Nick Allen and joining me today is Matthew Perkins. Hi Matt, could you start by giving us a brief overview of what health and safety is and why it's so important? First off, from an organisational perspective, it's a legal responsibility. Um, Across Australia and New Zealand, there's many health and safety laws that are um, outlined now and they are both handed down as an organisational level for workplace health and safety, but there's also legal responsibilities that will roll up to directors as well if those responsibilities aren't undertaken. Second of all, and on a much more positive note, um, health and safety makes happier, more productive employees. If people feel like they're safe in going to work and doing their job, then they're going to be much more secure and more efficient in what they're undertaking. And then finally, from an operational standpoint, if you are able to avoid health and safety issues, then you're not going to have any holdups or stand-ups within uh, your operations, which makes everything much more predictable and business operates much more efficiently. So today we're going to cover a few areas um, of where safety is important. Uh, Track focuses on strengthening workforce operations and the safety of those undertaking those workforce operations. And within this, there's really two key groups that we cover, and that's vehicle safety and loan worker safety. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Nick. Nick, what are some of the questions that you've heard out in the market around these sort of areas? Um- so just to, to brief overview, um, the vehicle is a place of work. Uh, may not always think of it that way, but uh, you know, if you're driving somewhere as for a work-related re- purpose, then it is an extension of the workplace. However, it's also one of the more dangerous. Uh, one in five uh, fleet vehicle vehicles will be in a, involved in an accident every year. And with er- workplace injuries and death statistics, have uh, vehicles as one of the, the top contributors to this number. So I guess the, the questions questions about you know vehicle safety like what are the some of uh, the contributing factors to to this risk or safety yeah all right um well look i mean fleets have a number of different areas in which safety contributes but when we talk specifically around vehicle safety um there's a few key ones that we really see coming up over and over again so the first of those is driver behavior so you're speeding you're harsh braking and accelerating um poor driver behaviour that happens out in the outside of your car park. And look, a lot of that is able to be addressed um, through training and support. Um, then you've got your mechanical issues. So vehicles that, you know, have potentially got something that's not fit for purpose, your tyres are starting to become bald or you haven't done a recent service and so it's got some potential flaws or issues that go wrong. Um, and then finally, you've got driver training. Um, so from a driving training perspective, there's some really clear gotchas with um, modern vehicles these days. And look, I'll, I'll cover those in a bit more detail um, a bit later on in this conversation. So um, I guess just touching on the first point, driving behaviour, what are some of the, the things that um, organisations can think about with regards to uh, how they might uh, you know, curb behaviour or, or re-educate their staff? 
Yeah, look, driver behaviour is um, definitely one of the key areas that fleets look at as a first point of call. Um, they start looking at uh, ways in which they can track and review their driver's behaviour. I mean, instead of waiting for a speeding ticket to come through or a crash to happen before you take action, many fleet managers are, are looking more proactively at looking at how they can address driver behaviour and the actions of their fleet drivers out in the field to ensure the safety of their fleet. Now, um, in many cases, this comes back to how do you track and record this information, which in many cases falls back to telematics. That's GPS tracking within vehicles that's able to provide telemetry data to allow you as a fleet manager to analyse driving behaviours and identify any misbehaviour that might be happening out in the field or issues that might be occurring so that you can proactively address them. Um, now, importantly within this driver behaviour side of things, uh, benchmarking becomes a really key thing. Uh, there's two ways that we tend to see fleet managers approach uh, driver behaviour. The first is a bit of a uh, carrot approach where you reward positive driver behaviour and the other is the stick where you're punishing people based off any negative behaviours. Um, when we talk about driver behaviour and benchmarking them in particular, it's really important to take a holistic view of your fleet. It's important to recognise that many fleet drivers are trying to do the right thing and in many instances um, you don't want to be punishing people on a one-off event because, first off, data's never 100% of the picture. There could be reasons why someone might have sped 5k over the limit on the freeway that potentially were overtaking or um, they missed a speed sign and, and they went 100 metres past the first speed sign where it's dropped 20k an hour and have been speeding for that period. Or potentially um, the base data on a map isn't 100% accurate because sometimes things like school zones come up and uh, you'll have it as a 40 kilometre an hour zone for part of the day and a 60 kilometre an hour zone for the remainder of the day. And so sometimes these things need to be taken in context. So you're suggesting that um, fleet managers shouldn't throw the book at, at their staff at the first instance, but maybe take a more, you know, a, a, you know, wider approach to these sorts of things? Look, I think it's a, a really important thing to be pragmatic about how you um, measure and punish your drivers. Um, potentially there is case to throw the book at someone if they're, you know, going 60, 80K over the limit. If someone's going 200K an hour along the freeway, then you've probably got reason to pull them up and talk to them straight away. But if it's a five kilometre over the limit here or there, then it's probably worthwhile looking at how often that happens overall across your fleet before you start bashing on any driver that does it because these things do happen and it's, as we all know, everyone's I've ever really known has had a speeding fine. It'd be very hard to uh, ensure that it's never going to happen, but what you can do is ensure that the trends across your fleet are moving in a positive direction and ensuring that based off those trends, they're moving in a more safe distant, uh, safe direction and um, ensuring the safety of your fleet. Um, we've seen some really great ways in which drivers, uh, sorry, fleets have been enabling improved driver behaviour. And one of the best ones that I've seen is through the use of gamification. Um, gamification's a really interesting little topic. Um, and I won't go into the 
mechanics of it. But essentially what you're looking at doing is recording and tracking certain measures of driver behaviour and scoring them against each other. And ideally, in a, sense, in a case of gamification, you're making these scores public to a degree. And what it allows is a level of healthy competition where people are able to outperform one another. Um, it highlights those that may be underperforming or behind the eight ball and provides some self-directed learning to or improvements because they don't ever want to be at the bottom. And rather than just looking at it from the stick approach, you can also look at it from the carrot approach within gamification and reward those that are high-end drivers within your fleet. So maybe they get the newer vehicles if you've got vehicle allocations or potentially you're doing um, something a little special for those that win on a monthly basis to ensure continual attainment of that. So something like a gift voucher for the safest driver in your fleet or even just buying them a lunch. Fair enough. All right, so moving on from um, from driver behaviour to mechanical issues, what, what are some of the things that, that um, you know, fleet managers can do to ensure that, you know, uh, their vehicles are kept up to scratch? Yeah, look, uh, keeping vehicles mechanically safe is just as important as the driver behaviour itself. Um, there's nothing worse than having a vehicle break down in the middle of the freeway, and it's far worse if it was something of an issue that would cause an accident. Um, now, we're all liable to leaving things to get to the end of their maintenance period before you go and address them. So really what you want to do is look at how you can proactively manage those mechanical issues. You want to have a look at um, ensuring that vehicles are fit for purpose and ensuring that they're regularly maintained. Um, there's also uh, the need to address regular operating conditions of vehicles. So things as simple as um, wear and tear on tyres and ensuring that you're checking the tyre pressure, that they've got regular checkups on uh, the level of tread in your vehicles to ensure that they're all legal. Uh, there are really simple ways to achieve that. What are some of the things that organisations can do to educate their drivers? Okay, so look, it's all well and good to hand over the keys to a staff member, but how do you know if they're licensed to operate a vehicle or even licensed in the first place? Um, now, we'll assume that most fleets have a policy or a process of checking that off, um, at least at a basic level, to ensure that their drivers have a licence. But um, skipping past if they are licensed or not, um, so many modern vehicles these days have additional safety features and driving assists that for someone who mightn't have ever experienced them before, it can be a real hurdle to overcome. So I can remember the first time I drove a vehicle with lane keep assist and while I was turning off a freeway, it forced me back onto the freeway lane. Um, and I thought uh, I was, it, the lane keep assist thought I was drifting um, and so forced me back on the lane and that was a really scary experience. I almost missed the freeway exit altogether. And to be honest, I could have very easily had an accident if I'd overcorrected or something like that. Um, and for a fleet driver, that could very easily shake them up um, and potentially, you know, throw them off ever wanting to use that vehicle again or potentially cause an accident had they overcorrected. Mm. 
Look, that's that's fair enough. And you know, new technology comes out all the time, so it's uh, always good to keep your uh, your staff and your, your fleet drivers up to date on what could potentially be in in new cars as they're rotated in and out. So I guess the next step is that you've you've done it all that you've done all everything that you can. You know, you've 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 trained your drivers. You've you've made sure that you've got mechanical. You know, your fleets, um, your vehicles are serviced and everything, and you're you're curbing driver behaviour so that everyone's driving in a safe manner. But you have an accident. So what's what happens next? Yeah. Look, first off, accidents are always going to happen. Um, you can do as much as you want to do around your driver training, but uh, inevitably there is going to be occurrences within fleets, and it may even may not even be necessarily the fault of your drivers themselves, but that someone else's issue that's caused it. So um, it's really important from a fleet manager perspective that you're aware of when these incidents do occur, because first off, the safety of your drivers is vital, and you want to ensure that you're aware if an incident does happen. Um, but then there's also the follow-up from it as well. So um, let's just assume, for example, that the driver's unconscious after an accident. You know, it's been a really high-speed, high-velocity incident um, that can really cause some issues from the health and safety standpoint. You'd really like to hope that someone else has seen this accident and been able to call it in. But there are occasions where... You know, your staff might be driving on a very remote road. Um, it could be somewhere where it's not regularly traversed by other traffic and that accident mightn't be detected for a period of time. Now, hopefully all fleets would have some sort of policy for checking in when staff have or haven't returned from their shift um, and you'd be able to detect it at that point at the very least. But it could be hours possibly even a full day before that's detected. And then you've got to retrace where they were and find that accident itself. So a great way of being able to proactively manage and address this issue is through high-impact and rollover detection. Um, so what it does is, similar to an airbag going off, it um, picks up on examples of high-impact uh, or high changes in velocity so um, the accelerometer in the gps tracking device is able to pick up the movement of your vehicle at or more importantly the speed at which it stops and is therefore able to send off an alert via um, its communications to the system and inform anyone who's set up as an alert recipient to be aware of that accident now the other nice thing about that is it also provides you the location information of it. So one of the things we might do is initially try and reach out and contact the person in the vehicle. But as we said, if they were unconscious or incapacitated in a way that they aren't able to answer their mobile phone, or maybe they're even outside of mobile reception because they're that remote, um, you need some way of being able to proactively address this. So you've got the alert. Now it's time to start thinking about uh, either calling the police, sending someone out there, um, or probably both, uh, to address it. Now, there is one other type of warning, and that's with a manual duress button within your vehicle. Um, and that can be really valuable for if you've got members of the public harassing someone in your vehicle, or if someone 
who's got your vehicle is feeling uncomfortable in a particular situation. Maybe there's someone tailgating them or something else and that they need to set off an alert that's both very quick to address but also doesn't require overt instances of making that aware. So picking up a mobile phone or uh, you know pressing a bright red button for its front of someone's face. It's something that can be put on the dash, could be covertly tapped away um, and sends off an alert. Now, where that can be really valuable is in cases where maybe they're outside of phone reception um, and it's not even a real accident. Maybe they've just, you know, punctured a tyre or, you know, something's gone wrong and mechanically the vehicle can't operate anymore. They've managed to safely take it off to the side of the road, but there's no way for them to call for help. They're, they're outside of cellular reception and as many rescue um providers would tell you it's always safest to stay with the vehicle so um hopefully uh your vehicle's got some emergency supplies maybe a space blanket some water and a little bit of food kept away um which would tide them over should the conditions get um a little into the negatives or a little too hot but more importantly it allows you now because you've been alerted to this situation to try and react to it so maybe you're not able to get in contact with them it's doesn't appear to be a crash, so maybe you send out a staff member who's in the area to respond to that particular alert or warning and allow you to uh, be able to proactively manage that situation. Fair enough. All right, so sounds like we covered everything off uh, with regards to, um, to vehicle safety. Moving on to, um, to the other topic, which is loan worker safety. Um, when people think of loan workers, they're imagining, generally imagining someone who might be in the, in the middle of nowhere, just like we're touching on with the, with, the vehicle, with the car accident there. But the fact is, is that most organisations might have learnt a loan worker of one type or the other. It's just that they don't think of them in that, that, in that particular sense. So we, def, we define a loan worker as, as someone who's an employee who undertakes a part of their role without close supervision and in isolation from other workers. Loan workers are particularly vulnerable and at, and at risk employees due to the additional exposure faced by having no one to assist them should they face any issues. So I guess sort of digging into to loan worker safety and the kinds of things that could um, could could um, you know, face loan workers, maybe we can start by maybe ticking a list and sort of talking about the types of loan workers that might be out there. Yeah, cool. So look, first off, loan workers are pretty quickly become anyone that's outside, uh, who, who's working outside of your office. It's, it's people who are um, mobile, who are part of your workforce and potentially either working alone or out in an area where they're going to be at risk. Um, so we commonly see examples of this with things like office workers who might be going to other parts of the campus or building. Maybe they're working um, in a section of the of the building where they need to check out a manufacturing section of your building or they're doing maintenance work in an area that's isolated, maybe in a basement where they don't get mobile reception. Um, other common scenarios we see are things like healthcare workers and social workers who are potentially going out to their actual customers or clients' um, homes and potentially have to not necessarily have to address their customer or client directly, but possibly a family member who's causing um, some concerns. Uh, we see a lot of authorised offices for 
government organisations, so councils who potentially have um, offices, or oh, sorry, uh, utilities who often have uh, reader meters, meter readers going out to check gas mains and electricity light mains and potentially needing access into private property or access at least to those meters, uh, which might be behind gates that may or may not need to be there. Um, you might also have things like security guards who are patrolling school campuses or um, parking inspectors who are going around suburbs uh, putting fines on vehicles uh, who we can all quickly understand would potentially receive the wrath of anyone that's uh, getting that ticket. <laughs> yeah, Do, doing doing a job, but, yeah, people don't necessarily uh, like the outcome. <laughs> so Absolutely. I mean, Nick, uh, from your perspective, I'm, I'm sure you've seen examples where you've, you've seen some people enraged against those individuals just going about their jobs. I sure as hell no, I haven't. And, look, there's frustration, but, you know, your interaction with them might be very different from what another member of the public would be, and it's not hard to uh, see how those interactions could get out of control. Exactly, exactly. So, um, I mean, I guess the thing is is that, you know, if, if the, the, all of these roles require staff to spend a, a portion of their time working alone, um, you know, they have an interaction with, they might have an interaction with the public and they could be delivering bad news or entering a potentially dangerous situation. So uh, I guess, so just sort of, sort of having touched on the different types of loan workers, what are some of the issues that they might face? Yeah, so look, firstly, they could have an accident. They could fall over, trip down some stairs, trip over a raised uh, tree root as they're walking through a forest if they're a forest worker. Um, maybe they've fallen off a ladder. There's all sorts of things that can happen in a workplace. Um, so secondly, they might find themselves in dangerous situations, as we've just talked about, things like uh, caseworkers checking on victims of domestic violence. You might have aggressive pets as you're going and checking metres and going through fences. Um, you might have environmental dangers. So, you know, maybe there's um, some flooding or uh, a fire or open electricity. I mean, I know we've seen from our customers examples where um, uh, we've had water providers working in areas or reopening areas that have been affected by bushfires and needing to know where those locations are to ensure that they can either steer their staff away or ensure that they've got appropriate support when entering those regions. Um, and finally, just exposure to the elements. Um, we work in a country or countries where temperatures can vary from anywhere in the negatives all the way up to stinking hot 45, 50 degrees on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, um, if you're in a location like that and you were to get have a breakdown or get stuck or injure yourself in those locations or, you know, have an environmental hazard like a snake bite, then those elements can be just as dangerous as the situation itself. And then finally, um, you've got those unpredictable encounters with the public. So, you know, maybe you're a council worker driving a council marked vehicle and you've got a member of the public tailgating you or driving erratically or aggressively around you because they don't particularly like the council. Maybe you're a parking inspector handing out that fine to a person who's 
running two minutes late to their car who just gets absolutely off their head with rage because they've had a bad day. And they've had a bad day. The that, that broke the camel's back. <laughs> and, and I mean, the very final one within that is, you know, talk about having a bad day. What if you're a security guard on somewhere like a university campus and you're seeing a uh, break-in happening and, and you now need to action it now? Um, it's all well and good to witness and raise the alarm, but you've probably also got to do something proactively to address that situation as, as a security guard. So there's all sorts of reasons and ways in which um, loan workers could face issues. Mm. All right. So you've we've sort of covered the kinds of things that, that, that you know, could potentially, you know, a situation that a loan worker might face. So what are the types of alerts? What are the sort of things that... Um, you know, I, I guess the ways in which that you could send a, an alert that you might be in duress. Yeah, look, um, we've got a large range of personal safety devices and solutions that will enable um, ways of tracking, monitoring and um, alerting. But there's four key ways in which um, these devices uh, depending on the device you're using, is able to uh, trigger an alert. Um, so the first one uh, that we've talked about is manual duress. So that's where you press a button saying, I'm in duress, and, and maybe you need to hold it down for a few seconds to ensure that it's not an accidental trigger. But once that's done, it sends an alert off to our system and allows um, that level of um, escalation to happen based off your procedures. Uh, the second is a time check-in. So uh, in the case of the staff member who might be working in a basement, if it doesn't have mobile reception um, or satellite reception for that matter, there's no way for them to set off a duress when they're down there. So one of the ways you can bypass that is by using something called a time check-in where you preset the amount of time in which you believe you're going to need to be operating and maybe it's a scheduled thing to ensure that you come up and down on a regular basis. Um, and you activate that before you go in. And what it does is it sends a signal up to the server, which means that it's doing a countdown. And unless you come back into reception and deactivate it, it will go off. And so that can be a really effective way should people be outside of reception during that period of time to set an alert if they don't return. Now, um, there are obviously opportunities for false positives there, but as there is with anything, appropriate level of time and appropriate bit of management, there is a countdown timer and there is um, alerts on that sort of thing. Um, next one's inactivity. So um, all of these or most of these devices are GPS tracked, um, and that means that you have the location of that staff member at any particular time. Um, an inactivity alert is when that device's GPS position hasn't moved in a predefined set period of time. Um, and it's a really effective way of detecting people who may have uh, fallen or hurt themselves and been uh, set unconscious um, and haven't been able to trigger what the next option would be, which is fall or tilt detection. Um, now, fall or tilt detection is based off an accelerometer and off an axis. So if the device is held on a particular angle for a certain amount of time, um, it will trigger an alert. Um, now, this can be really effective for people that are on their feet walking around warehouses or doing security and that sort of thing, so that if they were to fall down or be knocked out unconscious or whatever else, then um, the duress will go off. 
the issue is obviously it needs to set hit that certain angle of threshold. So often devices that have fallen tilt detection will also have inactivity detection so that if they haven't hit that angle, that where it's going to trigger off a fall detection, then the inactivity detection will come into play as a backup. Yeah, right. So they're kind of covering you know, all the possible scenarios depending on you know, what might potentially happen. Yeah, and look, no, no system's foolproof. Um, best practice would always be to have staff members working in a two-up manner um, as far as the control measures and around health and safety would align. Um, and there's a number of other ways in which you would also want to address the health and safety of your staff because devices alone are not a health and safety policy. They're a tool in, a, in enabling that health and safety policy. Um, but they're a great fail-safe and a great set of tools to ensure that you've got a way of communicating these situations and also locating that staff member. Fantastic. And the types of connectivity, like obviously, you know, some of these devices are going to work off certain you know, communications tech. So what are the different options that you can, you can see? Yeah, so look, um, as far as communicating from these devices back to our servers and, and the, where the fleet manager would be looking, um, you, you need some form of data um, connectivity. And with our systems, that usually comes in two forms. Um, the first is cellular connectivity, so your usual mobile phone network. Um, so essentially, if your mobile phone is able to operate in an area, then our devices will likely be able to send a signal in those areas as well. Um, and that's a really cost-effective and uh, wide-ranging solution because of how much ground across um, Australia, New Zealand, and the US we're able to cover with those. Um, but for more regional workers or those that are working in really remote locations, cellular reception is not going to cut it. They will be operating in those areas. And whilst the GPS will still keep recording and will keep that data on the device until they come back into reception, if they have a duress event while they're outside of reception, then that event's not going to be triggered. So what you really need is an alternative way of communicating back to those servers. Um, and that's where satellite connectivity comes in. So satellite connectivity works um, off, in many cases, the Iridium network and uses those satellites to bounce the signal up to the satellites and then back down to our servers where um, we're able to get that communication. Now, the benefits of satellite communication is that it is far more wide-reaching as far as where you can get it um, around the world. Um, and means that even in the depths of, say, the Simpson Desert, you're still going to be able to get mobile reception. The downside is, um, unlike cellular networks, you definitely need a line of sight to the sky. So if you're under really heavy foliage or you know underground, there's a potential for that device not to be able to communicate. So there is some gotchas within the satellite connectivity, um, as well as the cost of operating a satellite device tend to be a little higher because of the need to use that satellite network. And then finally, um, we also have one or two devices that operate off uh, both networks. So it uses the combination of both to get the best of both worlds. Um, and what it means is that you get all of the advantage of using the cellular network whenever it's available because it's cheaper and far more um, uh, efficient at transmitting that data. 
But when you're in more regional areas where that cellular reception isn't going to be available, it fails over to satellite and allows you to continue to use that communication method as a, as a way of engaging. Fantastic. So kind of wraps it up, I guess. Um, but, you know, thinking about next steps, I mean, we've covered a fair bit of ground here. Um, whilst there's a wealth of things we, we, you know, we can highlight as risks, mindful that we haven't gone into talking about too many of the, the potential solutions that, uh, you know, customers might be looking at. What's the best way for us to talk about them? Yeah, look, every organisation is different and their requirements, their budgets, their operational regions are all likely to be quite unique with them as well. Um, and whilst we could talk about a range of different answers based off specific scenarios, instead what I really encourage is anyone who's listening to this to just reach out and have a chat to us about what the best solution for that particular set of requirements is. Um, but if you're not comfortable with that, with that yet, you can always check out our blog or our website as well. Um, we talk about these issues in more specific details with outlines of the actions you could take and the solutions that we offer to help address these um, issues that we've highlighted. Um, and there's some quite robust uh, topic discussions on some of that. Um, hopefully that piques enough interest for you to have a conversation with us. It, it really is something that we're very open to kind of discussing and understanding your particular scenario. As we say, everyone's is different and it's always interesting to find out a new challenge. Um, so if you check out our website, which is www.smarttrack.com, um, you'll be able to find more information about all of our solutions and uh, they'll be able to help you out. Anyway, um, Nick, thanks for the conversation, mate, and uh, look forward to covering our next topic in the next uh, session. Yeah, it's been fun, Matt. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully you can all join us for our next chat in the uh, next podcast. Thank you.